take just a second. Let me um, just welcome you this morning to uh, this gathering of the Point Community Church. Y'all doing good? It's hard to tell. Like, you know, you, you're hidden behind your smiles. And those of you that are joining us this morning on live stream, certainly I uh, <clears throat> can't. I, I mean, your, your smile is hidden behind your face mask. That's probably the way it's going to be. I feel, whew, two services. But uh, anyway, welcome to those of you that are, are joining us. I know that we got several people that are, that are traveling, including uh, Pastor Sean and Heather, who are out west in Oklahoma, Pastor Frank and uh, Miss Vivian. They're out west as well. And I know there's other folks that are traveling, but I'm so glad that you're here. We had a great holiday um, and... Let's pray, and then we'll get started, and we'll unpack this text. And so, uh, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for, thank you for your word, Lord, and Lord, thank you for, for the country in which we live by your sovereign hand that you've appointed both the times and the places that we are to live. Thank you for this place that we get to live, the place where we get to serve you, be a church, do church, Lord. Lord, we understand and we know that we are not perfect not a perfect nation. We're not a perfect people. But Lord, we're thankful for the freedoms that you have afforded us, the freedom to gather together and to worship, not in fear, but with boldness, Lord. Um, Lord, we, we thankful for the freedom to preach the gospel, teach your word, all of those things without fear of being censured, corrected, any of those things, Lord. And especially in a time given that we spent several weeks, several months quarantined apart from gathering together. We are especially thankful for the grace that it is to be able to gather together. But we're thankful for um, just the technology that we have, that we can go over the internet, Lord, even as we as elders receive word back from folks who are watching us and, 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 and joining in virtually with us, Lord, um, from, all, from all over, Lord. Uh, Gosh, what a humbling thing, and we're thankful for it, Lord. Lord, we want to steward this time. We want to steward it well. We pray, Lord, I pray for me, Lord. I feel, I feel tired, Lord, and just the thought of preaching through all of that um, just feels daunting and feels exhausting. May your spirit give me life. May your spirit give me energy, Lord. Lord, I pray for these people, Lord. I know that it's warm in here and warm and sunny out there, Lord. Lord, may we just be attentive, attentive to you and attentive to your word. May we be soft to your spirit. May your spirit work. May your spirit carry your word. May, may it be like a, like a missile into our hearts, Lord. Lord, we pray this and we ask this in your powerful name. In your name we pray, amen. Uh, let me back up just a little bit and fill in some of the blanks that may be missing. And like, I think I maybe said this last week. I'm not sure which gathering I may have said it in, but I know for me that if you were to, if you were to give, me, give me like a survey of the Old Testament, uh, it, it, trivia exam or something, you know, quiz, I know this part right here from here until the coming of Christ gets a little muddy for me, gets a little confusing as to the minor prophets, the major prophets, who they're prophesying to. And even whenever you talk about like today, Jeroboam and Rehoboam, and I'm like, who, you know, who, who are those folks? And so let me just fill in some of the gaps. Like let's move back. We'll move back like all the way back, maybe as much as five books that the book of Judges in, ends. And it ends with a, with a verse that's a, that's a transitional verse. It's almost like a, like a hinge that the same door that shuts opens again on this hinge verse. And the hinge verse is this. It says, um, in, in, the, in those days, there, were, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So that's how Judges in, 
ends. It ends with this longing for a king. And then as Judges shuts the door on Moses and shuts the door on the judges, it shuts the door on the conquest, shuts the door kind of on Joshua, and it opens a new door, and the new door is kings. And so you have like first and second Samuel. And um, in the Hebrew Bible, first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles are all one book. So in reality, they're one book. In our English Bibles, in the Latin, I believe even, it gets translated or broken down into two. But in the Hebrew Bible, it's been one. So Solomon, Kings, Chronicles, and really the rest of even the the prophets, the major and the minor prophets that are coming, they're telling us about the age of the kings. They're also telling us what abysmal failures these kings were. That as Judges enters, I I say this about that verse in Judges, it, it creates a sense in us where we have like this longing where hopefully we would say like, oh, if only they had, they had a king. That the latter parts of Judges is like very dark days for the children of Israel. It seems as if they've almost forgotten that they've been ransomed and redeemed by God. They've forgotten the law. They've forgotten what God's done. Like even though he's already judged a generation in the wilderness and now you have this new generation and yet it seems as if they have forgotten God as well. There's just not a lot of godliness. And it leaves you with this longing to say like, gosh, if only there was a king. And then what we have happening here in this section is, becoming and the establishing of a king. And yet we also, like I said, we see that the king is just kind of a a miserable failures. They're not just miserable failures in political ways. And in some ways, some of the kings that will be categorized as bad kings, in some ways they may be good kings. They'll form alliances. The, the, The Israelites will, the nation of Israel will evolve in some ways. Like cities will be built, walls will come. Places will get built, aqueducts, like you'll see them like evolving as a, as a people group and a civilization. But more importantly, it's not political, but it's when in the ways of godliness and in the ways of even like you could maybe even say theology, like it's an inability of these kings to lead the people into godliness. And what you see happening in, in especially in Kings and in Chronicles and in the, in the prophets that will come later is what you have is um, as the kings went, so did the people go. That the quality of the king, and when I mean again quality, I'm not talking about the the in political ways, I'm talking about in godliness. That the quality of the king determined the blessing of God on the kingdom. And so today we're introduced to the fourth king. So just as a way of review, let's talk about the first four kings. The first king, the king over uh, Israel will be King Saul. And what I said about King Saul was he's the people's king. He's the one that they pick. He's the tallest and the most handsome and the most beautiful. Like all of those things are true about Saul, but he will, he will disobey God and he will persecute David and he's ultimately not a good king. And then second will be King David. And King David is the shepherd king, the warrior king, the poet king. And he is a good king, but he sins and he allows sin in his life. And even what we see happening here in this text of scripture and what will follow will come because of the consequences of David's sin. The third king is King Solomon. And I said, when we think about King Solomon, I want you to think about four things. Three of them start with a W, one with a T. I want you to think about wisdom, wealth, women, and the temple. And that third one, the the third W, the women, that's what will lead um, to the downfall of Solomon. 
That's what will lead Solomon into the most trouble, that Solomon will take for himself many wives, many of which will be foreign wives. And it isn't just a problem that they're foreigners, but the problem is, is they worship foreign gods. They worship idols that are not God. Solomon will make alliances with these other countries. And then ultimately what will happen is Solomon's heart will be turned from worshiping God to worshiping these other gods. One of the gods that will be instituted will be the god Molech. And the Israelites, including Solomon, will begin to worship the god Molech. And Molech is worshiped through child sacrifice. And so you just think about how far that they have fallen. First Kings chapter 11, verse three, says this about Solomon, that he had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. Now the significance of the number 700 there is the significance is this, that it's a lot. He had a lot of wives, an excess of wives, excess of concubines. They're princesses. These alliances are being formed. And his wives, look at what happened. They turned away his heart. Verse number four, for when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord, his God, as was the heart of David, his father. For Solomon went after Ashereth, the goddess of the Sidonians and Milcom, the abomination of the Amorites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David, his father, had done. And Solomon built a high place for Shemosh, the abomination of Moab, and Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites and the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods and the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Solomon sins. His sin is the sin of idolatry and judgment comes. And the judgment comes in the form of division. It comes in the form of disunity to the kingdom. Like I said, as, uh, as the kings went, so did the people go. And because Solomon's heart is divided, his worship is divided, God will divide the kingdoms. And so we enter into a new character. This new character is a man by the name of Jeroboam. The second Chronicles chapter 10 isn't the first time we see Jeroboam. Jeroboam was actually with Solomon. Now Jeroboam and Rehoboam, like their names sound similar, but they're not related. That Jeroboam is not in the Davidic line. He's not a son of Solomon. He's not any kin to Solomon. He's a different cat altogether. But Jeroboam, what he was for Solomon was he was kind of the, the public works director. He was kind of the, the leader of the labor cabinet, if you will. He was kind of the union boss over this, this labor that, that uh, Solomon had instituted. And God speaks to the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite. That's pretty close. And he meets with Jeroboam. So what happens is Ahijah, the prophet, God reveals this word to Ahijah and he comes to Jeroboam and he catches Jeroboam outside of Jerusalem. And Ahijah has on like a new robe, a new garment, the text of scripture says. And what he does is he does kind of an object lesson for Jeroboam. He does this deal where, and oftentimes you'll see prophets doing this. It's something that's like concrete object left lesson in order to foretell something that's gonna happen in the future. Ahijah takes off this new garment. He takes it and he rips it into 12 pieces, right? For the 12 tribes of Israel. He gives 10 of them to Jeroboam. And then he actually keeps two of them, but only one of them goes to Judah. 
There's, and I know you go like, wait a minute, 10 plus one. What about the, like the 12th one? Well, that's the Levites. And the Levites don't have any land. Levites stay with the temple. They don't own anything. They're the, they're the priests. And so they're just kind of uh, understood that they're going to go with Jerusalem. So there's now 10 are going to go with Jeroboam. Here's your 10 pieces of my garment. And then one will be left for Judah. And so that's what uh, Ahijah does. And then that doesn't happen in Solomon's lifetime. That because of God's love for David and even Solomon, he waits until Solomon's death. And so Solomon dies, and now you have a new king in town, Solomon's son, King Rehoboam. And that's what we're seeing happening in chapter 10 of 2 Chronicles. Rehoboam is going back to Shechem, where he's going to be uh, coronated, if you will, as king. Now, um, King Rehoboam is a power-hungry fool, as we see even in the text. The text says that the people, they come with a complaint to Rehoboam. When it says the people, it's speaking about the Israelites. They're called the corvée. And what it is, it's the slave labor. That under Solomon, he's done a lot to establish the city, a lot to establish the nation. He's built more more cities than they've ever had, more walls, more fortified, more of all of these kinds of things, a bigger palace. The temple's all been built, but a lot of it has been built on the backs of slave labor. So whether it was the foreign um, folks that were left in the land that whenever they took conquest of the land, they brought them in as slaves, but then it wasn't enough people. And so Solomon has enslaved his own people. And those are the people that come to Rehoboam with this complaint. We see it in verse number four. Second Chronicles 10, four. Your father, meaning Solomon, Rehoboam, your father, Solomon, he made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the hard service that your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. Look at what they're saying. Like, hey, if you'll lighten the load that has been placed upon us, like we don't have a problem serving you. We'll do it. You just gotta have realistic expectations. Lighten the load. And so what Rehoboam replies to them is, give me three days, and in three days, I'll give you an answer. During those three days, Rehoboam calls in advisors. First, he meets with the older advisors, those who had been with Solomon. He asks them, what shall we do? And here's the advice of the older advisors. Here's what you should do, Rehoboam. Serve the people and they will serve you. That the king ultimately, the position of a king is to be a servant and to lead. Servant leadership will go a long way. Well, Rehoboam listens to that. And then Rehoboam entertains the younger advisors. He listens to those that says they grew up with Rehoboam. So it's friends of Rehoboam. And he asks them, what should we do? They're asking me to lighten the load. And the younger advisors say, no, Rehoboam, what you need to do is you need to come out strong. You give these people an inch, they're gonna take a mile. In fact, what they say is the exact opposite. Not that the king needs to be a servant, but that the king needs to be a tyrant. And the power corrupts Rehoboam. And so Rehoboam listens to the younger advisors, which we could just go in and we could just say, hey, a biblical principles oftentimes listen to your elders, right? That's what we parents, we tell, listen, I've lived life. I know how this is going, listen to this. But nevertheless, Rehoboam doesn't. The power corrupts him. Verse number 13, you see Rehoboam's answer. And King Rehoboam answered them harshly, And forsaking the counsel of the old men, King Rehoboam spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men saying, my father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to it. My father disciplined you with whips, but I'm gonna discipline you with scorpions. It's gonna be a sting and a bite. 
So the king did not listen to the people for it was a turn, but look at this. It was a turn of affairs brought about by God that the Lord might fulfill his word. It's reminding us, even though this is what's happening, even though it's horrible, that underneath of it all is the sovereign hand of God, that nothing is happening by accident, that everything unfolding is happening by the word spoken by God and the sovereignty of God, that this, that even though this is um, something that's, that's bad that's happening, and yet what we see balancing that out is the truth of God's sovereignty, which he spoke to Ahijah, to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And then what follows after that, what follows after 2 Chronicles chapter 10 is 2 Chronicles chapter 11 and then following. And what happens is a civil war. And sometimes you don't think about that. I I don't think we often think about a civil war breaking out in Israel. We think about the kingdom being divided. We think about there now being like Israel and there's there's now Israel and there's Judah. But oftentimes we don't think about a civil war that brothers will be fighting brothers. You got the sons of Jacob, right? That are now fighting, the sons of Israel that are now fighting amongst each other. And there's a civil war that breaks out and the kingdom will divide. It'll happen just as Ahijah had said. There'll be 10 tribes that will form. They'll keep the nation to the north, which will be Israel. Later on, they're gonna take for themselves their own capital, which will be Samaria. Their first king will be Jeroboam. Jeroboam will be brought back and they'll make Jeroboam their king. And Jeroboam turns out to be a horrible king. He's an idolater. The first thing that Jeroboam does is Jeroboam has two golden calves made and establishes it in two cities in Israel. I mean, it's like they've gone full circle. It's like the the cycle of sin and the cycle of stupidity. They come back around to idol worship and it isn't even like, you know, it's not even obscured. It's just obvious. And Jeroboam will declare like the children of Israel in the wilderness, they will declare at the base of Mount Sinai, this is Yahweh. This is your God that brought you out of, the, uh, out of Egypt. Now worship him. And he establishes it in two different places. Jeroboam is terrible. Um, Israel will only last 200 years. From this point, 200 years. It will, uh, in 722 BC, it will be overtaken, destroyed, exiled by Assyrian invaders. Over those 200 years, they're going to have 20 different kings, nine different families. So competing dynasties that sometimes there'll be two and three kings all competing to be the king. All of their kings, all of the kings of Israel for the next 200 years will be bad, ungodly kings. God will send men like, like prophets like Elijah and Elisha, that's next week, Hosea, Amos, and they will be calling Israel to repentance. They will be predicting the coming judgment through the destruction of Israel, but to no avail, and Israel will be destroyed after 200 years. The southern kingdom will be established, and it will be called the kingdom of Judah. Now, this is one of my favorite things about the Bible, that what we see happening here is we see fulfillment of prophecy that has occurred some 900 years ago. Like, let that sink in. 900 years before this event, 900 plus years before, uh, before this event, Jacob, who becomes Israel, and his old age, he will bless each of his sons. And when he gets to his son Judah, Jacob will say this, and this is in Genesis chapter 49. He says this, the scepter, So a scepter, a king holds a scepter. The scepter will not leave out of Judah, will not leave out of Judah's hand, 
until Shiloh comes. It's basically the rough interpretation of that. And so I think it's a, a tipping of the hat of the Messiah. It's not gonna leave until, until it's time for Jesus to come. David is from the tribe, is from the people group of Judah. You have the Davidic covenant that has come just a few generations before this event coming where God promises David a, a dynasty. David's the one that says, God, I wanna build you a house. And God says, no, David, I'm gonna build you a house. And there's a play on words. David's talking about a temple, but God is talking about a dynasty. And so what you have happening here is you have the people of Judah, right? the, the nation, the, the people group of Judah being separated and being, being kept contained in fulfillment to Jacob's prayer in Genesis 49, but Judah is the royal line. He sets up a, a Davidic dynasty of kings. One tribe, Judah, their king will be King Rehoboam. And like I said, Solomon's son, he's a complete train wreck. Their capital will be the city of Jerusalem. They will last 350 years. So 150 years after Israel was destroyed, they'll continue so around 586, 587 BC, they too though, they will be overtaken. Jerusalem will be laid to ruins. We pretty much the walls will be destroyed. The temple will be destroyed. The people will be exiled by the Babylonians. Over those um, 350 years, they too will have a, roughly about 20 kings, but from one family. And that one family is the Davidic line in keeping with the Davidic covenant. Gosh, I love when God does that when he fulfills this word and gives it to us, even in history where we can see that God is ultimately in control over all things and all of his word, all of his promises come true. And we see that happening even in the midst of sin and idolatry of mankind. A couple of um, application points that I have for us. The first one is this, that disobedience leads to division, which leads to demise. that even Jesus will say, a kingdom divided, a kingdom will not stand. A kingdom divided against itself will not stand. We use it as kind of the same thing, you know, for Kentucky's kind of anthem or whatever. And it's so true, it's from the Bible. And that's what we see happening here, is you have a kingdom that will be divided and then will ultimately happen, it will be the demise of that kingdom. But it backs up, if you back up, it starts in, disobedience, that what happens is a, as a crack under the surface, if you will, in the life of David, it grows to be a crevice in Solomon that grows to be a canyon in Rehoboam. Back in 2007, there was a, in the city of Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota, there was a, a bridge. Some of you may remember this, a, a, a bridge collapse. Now, I don't for those of you that are a little wiggy about driving over bridges, I'm, I'm sorry, but it, it happened. It was current events, it's history. It's also a pretty good illustration, but this bridge collapsed and falls down into the river. I mean, it just, there was no earthquake. There was no typhoon. There was no nothing. It just seemingly seemed like on a busy morning, like any other morning that all of a sudden this bridge just crumbles and collapsed and falls into, uh, into a river beneath. And folks ask the question, like, how could this happen? How can a bridge suddenly collapse? But the truth is, is that it didn't suddenly collapse. It wasn't something that happened uh, suddenly. That the bridge had been collapsing for years. The chemical that they had been using to treat, to treat the bridge to keep it from freezing had corroded the steel infrastructure of the, of the bridge. And it's what led to the collapse of the bridge. They had even put in like, 
like spray ports on the side of the bridge that could constantly spray the bridge with this corrosive chemical that was reacting with the steel that was leading to the failure of the bridge. It wasn't something that happened. It was something that happened instantaneously. The bridge collapsed instantaneously. Yes, the effect of it we saw, but it was something that was happening slowly over time. And the same thing is happening here. As we see a kingdom that's divided, it's slowly happening. It's a slow failure of the very foundation and the fabric is what's leading to the collapse. Something that's happening slow. It's something that started all the way back with David. What happened in David's life with unaddressed, unrepentant, disobedient on the part of David. I'm not even talking about Bathsheba here. I'm talking about something that even predates um, in the life of David, predates Bathsheba. And what happens is David begins to marry a multitude of wives. That David takes for himself a multitude of wives. That's called polygamy. And polygamy was never God's plan for marriage. Never. You don't see it being, uh, you don't see it being allowed or endorsed, in, in, certainly in the creation account. You don't see it being allowed or endorsed even in the law. That although God tolerated it, he allowed it. He never endorsed it. In fact, for kings, he forbid it. In Deuteronomy 17, 14, so going all the way back into Exodus, God gives this to the word of Moses. And this is what Moses says. When you enter the land, the Lord your God is giving you and having taken possession of it and you've settled it, And you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. I mean, that happens. God says, here's what's going to happen. And then that happens. That very thing happens. We want a king. And that's how you get King Saul. But nevertheless, he says, be sure to appoint over you a king that the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. The king, moreover, here's some criteria for the king. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. What starts as a crack in David becomes a crevice in Solomon. And as you read that, you think about Solomon and think about Solomon's life. I mean, Solomon does us even down to the horses. Solomon will establish a trade route between Israel and Egypt to move horses up and down, doing the very thing in Deuteronomy 17 that the Lord God forbids him to do. Not only that, David will, I mean, uh, Solomon will take on foreign wives. He will marry a multitude of wives. And ultimately his disobedience will bring about a hardness of heart. Cracks lead to crevices that lead to canyons. And that is so true in our own lives. Sometimes in small disobedient ways where we're disobedient to God's ways and disobedient to God's law, when God tells us in his word how we are to live, the road and the path of flourishing and what that looks like in God's master design. And sometimes we say like, hey, that sounds good, but no, I think I'm gonna do it my own way. That's what David, that's what Solomon does. And ultimately the disobedience brings division, which brings the demise. As the king goes, so does the whole country go. And the same thing is true for us in our own hearts and our own lives. The truth of the matter is, is that 
preach to myself for a minute. Nobody gets, nobody gets obese overnight, right? It's just, it's one pizza after another. And I ate almost a whole large Domino's pizza last night myself. Now it was thin crust, but nevertheless, I ate almost of all. But that's what happens. It's pizza after pizza after pizza, ice cream after ice cream after ice cream, whatever it may be for you. Right now, that's what it is for me. French fries and all of those things. And you ignore exercise, you ignore discipline, and it's small and it's subtle and it's slow and it takes time. And as it takes time, the, the next thing you know, you got one of your kids poking you in the belly saying, gee, daddy, that, you know, your belly sure is getting big. And then you discipline that child and you send them to a room and you say, don't ever, you know, come out again, right? In the same way, the sin works in seemingly ways. It works in seemingly insidious ways. The sin is insidious. It's disobedience. The Bible warns us of the deceitfulness of sin. And what happens is the sin deceives and it hardens both. It deceives us and then it hardens us as well, a change of heart. And that's what we see happening in the life of Solomon. We see Solomon being disobedient. And then as he, as he gets older, it says, as time goes on, then you see a change of heart. Probably young Solomon, especially as you read like Proverbs, you read the advice that Solomon is giving to Rehoboam. Gosh, good grief. The advice that he's giving to Rehoboam in Proverbs. And you could go back and say, yes, Solomon, but you won't heed that advice and you're gonna change. Your heart is gonna be turned. And as an old man, you're gonna serve other gods. You're gonna worship at other places, at the high places, to foreign gods, to idols. You're gonna include them. What happened? How did he get there? It was simply this, sin deceived him and his heart changed. Hebrews chapter three warns us of the same thing. There's a deceitfulness of sin, a hardening of sin. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 4 that the folks' conscience, in the latter days, people's conscience will be seared as with a hot iron. Their conscience that tells them what's right and what's wrong, that's soft to the Lord, says this is wrong and this is evil. It gets seared over, calloused over, becomes hard. So they do things that they would never dream of ever doing. Just like that bridge collapse, it doesn't happen instantaneously. It happens over time. He, Ephesians chapter four, Paul writes this and starting in verse 17, now this I say and testify in the Lord. He says that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Now here when Paul's using Gentiles, he's not just using it as Jews versus Gentiles, but what he's saying is those on the outside, those that are in the world, those who are, as he says, alienated, they're divorced from God, they don't know God, they don't have his law, they don't know God's way of flourishing, they don't understand God's design, they don't have any of those things, they have no knowledge of it, they're living on the outside, but you who are on the inside, don't be like they do. How are they? Well, verse 18, listen, they are darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from the life of God because why? Because of the ignorance that is in them. But then he even takes it down another notch, takes it down another layer. He gets to the sin that's beneath the sin due to a hardness of heart. That's the issue. Their hearts have become hard, allowing them to be ignorant of God and ignorant of his ways. How did their hearts get hard? Through disobedience. They became callous. They've given themselves up to sensuality, to greedy, to practice every kind of impurity. That's the end of the road. The end of the road that Paul's describing there is spiritual destruction. But if you back up that spiritual destruction, it starts in very small, insidious sins in our hearts. It starts with a hardness of heart, an unwillingness to listen and to obey and to heed the wisdom of God. 
leads us to becoming calloused, having a calloused conscience where we're ignorant, we're separated from God, we're alienated from God, and leads to ultimately spiritual destruction. Solomon will write in Proverbs and say, can a, can a man carry a hot coal close to his chest and not be burned? And then what Solomon will do is Solomon will carry hot coals close to his church, to his chest, and he will be burned. It leads to us. It begs the question for us, are there hot coals that you're holding close to your heart, thinking you won't get burned? Are there places in your life where you refuse to allow God's word to address you, to confront you, to rebuke you? Are there places that you've justified sinful behavior, sinful actions, sinful thoughts, inabilities to love, whatever else it may be? Years ago, there was a song by the Christian group Casting Crowns. They talked about a slow fade, and that is so true. Gosh, I've seen it time and time again. The slow fade. Something happening over time. And we've got to be, we've got to be weary. We've got to be wary of the Lord's, aware of the Lord's, I mean, of, this, of Satan's devices and how he works and of the Lord's warning as well. Not only do we see that the work of sin is insidious and it starts off small with just disobedience that leads to ultimately division and spiritual destruction. What we also see here is that idolatry brings about disunity. What divides the kingdom of God is ultimately idolatry. That what united the 12 tribes together wasn't a political pact, but it was a common faith. It was a common identity. They were the promise, ransom, redeemed children of God. And this is what united them. Their relationship with God was the main thing. It was the main thing in their life. But listen, when, when main things, when main thing, when the main thing of worship of God alone, our identity of who we are in God, when those main things get replaced by other things, then what happens is disunity ensues. Division ensues. That the enemy loves to work in with disunity. That the unity that we share is a unity in Christ. And that is what is of a most important, like the Israelites, that's our unity as we worship God and as we know God and as we live for God. That's what draws us together. Can I just say pastorally on behalf of the pastors of the church, that we are concerned about us as a church. We're concerned about the church in America, but we're concerned about the, our church, the Point Community Church. That this time last year, if you'd asked me, you know, Pastor Andy, what do you think about our church? Are we a healthy church? Are we a united church? I would have said yes and yes. Yes, we are healthy. Yes, we are united. If you would have asked me, what are some things that could jeopardize our unity, jeopardize our health, compromise those things? Like I could have given you a generic list. I maybe would have put some theological issues or theological matters in there, but I could have, I could have given you just a guesstimation of some things that I've seen wreck other churches that we need to be worried about. Like there would have been some things on the list that I wouldn't be worried about, like color or carpet, although you never know. But still, nevertheless, I would, have, I would have just guessed. But now, in July 2020, I know what can compromise the unity of a healthy church like ours. A global pandemic where we really don't know much about the disease, where it feels as if information is constantly changing it's inconsistent information, new rules, new suggestion, new regulations. That can certainly compromise the unity of a church. 
being quarantined for three months, having to move weekly gatherings to a live stream, the people not being able to practice the coming together um, together in worship, being united to one another, sitting under the, or standing for us, standing under the singing of the word, sitting under the preaching of the word, practices of the, of the ordinances of the Lord, face masks, a spiraling economy, racial injustice that amps up racial tensions, followed by a month of rioting, removing, not removing statues and monuments. And listen, my fear is we haven't even gotten to the election yet. And I'm concerned, we're deeply concerned about the unity of us as a church. That what unites us as the Point Community Church, what binds us together, it isn't our ethnicity, it isn't our opinions, certainly it's not our political ideologies, but what binds us together is the fact that we have been ransomed and redeemed by the blood of Christ, that we've been called to him and we've been called to one another, and that is what matters most. That is the main thing. And may we, may we practice what we preach by keeping the main thing, the main thing, the main thing is the plain thing. And that is what's most important for us as a church. In fact, good grief, we've named ourselves the Point Community Church. So when people say, what's the point? We could say to them, the point is Jesus. We wanna be all about glorifying Jesus. And that's what unites us. But the truth of the matter is disunity is often the fruit and what's at the root is idolatry. That's what we see happening here in Israel. What divides the church is idolatry. When Jesus is removed or for them, when God, when Yahweh and their identity in him, when he is removed, then it's just up for grabs for anything that you wanna put in its place. The same thing happen, can happen to us. That idolatry is when Good things, created things become ultimate things for us. In fact, in the New City Catechism that we teach our children in children's ministry, we teach our students question number 17 in the New City Catechism. What is idolatry? Idolatry is this. Idolatry is trusting in created things, tertiary things, right? Other things rather than the creator, when we're trusting in those things for our hope and our happiness and our significance and our security, when those things become ultimate things that every one of us knows of probably churches, there's probably many of us have experienced disunity, fractures, splits in churches. I know I have, I've experienced that in the past and it was an incredibly painful thing for me and for the church and for the members of the church. It was was a horrible time. And the truth is, is most churches, they, they rarely split over theology. Happened in the Reformation, and I don't know, maybe it's happened a handful of times since then. It's usually not important things that they split over, but they split over worship modes, color of carpet, and power and finances, schooling methodologies, political ideologies, face masks, how we respond to global pandemics, all of those sorts of things. That as we see for in the text, what we see is we see this longing. We see the the average Israelite, the average Hebrew that has this, this longing, this longing for a king. And you and I, we find ourselves still in that place. We're still longing for 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 a leader to lead us so that we can experience the blessing of God. We're still like we have that in Christ, but yet we want that in fullness. And sometimes we can. 
We could put that, that, that burden and that hope upon a political leader. We gotta be careful that political ideologies can turn to idolatry when we look to those ideologies to do what only Jesus can do. Goodness, for Christ's sake, may we not do that. For Christ's sake, may we be careful how we post on social media. For Christ's sake, may we be wise and uplifting and encouraging. May we be on social media. May we not see social media as a way to lob grenades, politically charged grenades that you're just gonna blow shrapnel everywhere. And let me tell you, one of the places that's blowing shrapnel is here in the body of Christ. Goodness. I had a list of things and conversations that I'm having on a weekly basis that I never had to have before. Like my primary job is just unruffling feathers and most of the feathers are getting ruffled through through things that really don't matter. They absolutely don't matter in the grand scheme of things. What matters most is Christ and our witness for Christ. Jesus has said, in this, they will know that, that you are my disciples and that you love one another. May your discipleship be proved by your unity and your love for one another. And sometimes for Christ's sake and for your brothers and sisters' sake, it's best just not to post that meme there's enough of it out there. Do we have to continue it? What's, what's the hope? That you're somehow gonna change somebody's mind? Like raise your hand if your mind has been changed by a meme. And if it has, I would question like your intelligence. Can we just for Christ, like literally I mean this church and I mean this to you who may be watching later for Christ's sake. Can we be careful with what we're posting on social media? can we, for the good of Jesus? That ultimately Jesus is our hope. Anything outside of Christ, a new political leader, a new revolution, anything outside of that is a false hope and it can be an idol. Ultimately, our hope is in Jesus, that Jesus is the only leader. He is the only king who will bring about lasting change. He is the king who will come and bring in and usher in a new revolution. Yes, he's doing it. Impartial fulfillment in us as the church, may we be a picture of that. He's uniting all things to himself, ushering in finally in someday in the future, a new heaven, a new earth, and that is our hope. We're constantly looking for people who will hold power and hold it loosely. And constantly what we see is we see power like with Rehoboam falling in unworthy hands. Just recognize that our ultimate hope lies in Jesus and the revolution that he will bring. And a king like Jesus, who king will say, you know what? Being king isn't about being a tyrant, but being king is about being a servant. And that is Jesus. Jesus comes and Jesus says, I didn't come to be served, but I come to serve. And I came to give my life as a ransom for many. And there's coming a day when Christ will receive all power and all wealth and all wisdom and all might and all honor and all glory and all blessing will go to Christ. And he is our hope. He is our only hope. It is only under him when Jesus comes that we will be fully united. Not only us as God's people, but he will unite all things to himself. And until that day arrives, may we heed what Paul says in Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about 
these things. Gosh, how different would our days be if that was true of us? If we disciplined our thoughts to think about those types of things? If we disciplined our mouths to talk about those kinds of things? If we disciplined our fingers so that we only post and tweet those kinds of things? Oh, how different our days would be. But may it be true of us. Let us pray. Jesus, we are your church. And Jesus, as we're about to sing, we're about to ask you to hold us fast. I would pray that and I would ask you that you would hold us fast. That you would hold us as individuals, that you would hold us fast and hold us fast to you. And Jesus, we would pray and we would ask you that you would hold our Christian witness fast. Hold our Christian witness intact. Hold our love and our unity that we share for one another. Hold us fast, hold us intact, Lord. Guard us from our own foolishness. Guard our minds, Lord, that we may be governed by these types of things, Lord. That we would be governed by a hope. An already not yet hope. That's hard for us because we've already got it in impartiality. We understand you, Jesus, you are the King of Kings. And yet it's uh, not yet because it's not in its fullness. You haven't yet united all things to yourself. It's coming. So in this already place, by your power, hold us. Hold us, Lord. May we heed your warning and your word. May we not be like David and be like Solomon and be like Rehoboam, but Lord, may we be open. May we be listening. May we receive your word with gladness. May it change us, Lord, all for your glory. It's all for your glory that we pray this and we ask this. In your name we pray, amen.